Remembering Norwin Corwin on Scribble. Welcome to Scribble, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Rebecca Wee. And I'm Don Wooten. Christopher Husted manages the Norman Corwin estate. He'll tell us about the famous writer on Scribble. I don't understand how you uh, manage the Norman Corwin estate. It sounds like a groundskeeper kind of thing. Is <laughs> a, is a, he was a great writer and a performer on radio, but what are you managing exactly? Well, this is an intellectual property job, basically. Oh. Uh-huh. It's dealing with um, all the work that he created, would be it written, uh, recorded, filmed. Um, I am I'm concerned with any of the uh, details about the rights, um, anything that might have been published or other contracts that have made that that uh, limit the estate's control of the property. Um, I'm concerned about manuscripts, locating source material um, that has not managed to make its way into university archives. And much of his uh, legacy is now um, either at UC Santa Barbara or at Syracuse University. Um, There's also a collection at Boston University. Um, And the UCSB collection is the primary one. Uh, and that's also where Bernard Herman's papers are at. Now, you actually came to Norman Corwin via Bernard Herman, the composer. Yes. Uh, how did you get involved with Herman? My interest in Herman began on July 1st of 1977 at 10.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. Are you or Central sure? Daylight Time. Are you sure of this? I am sure because I went to the Moline Library and got into the TV guide in the paper to find out when that telecast was. They showed the day the earth stood still. And I, I didn't, I might not have even thought about it again had I not seen his name associated with that film in a, uh, a magazine that I read the next day. Um, I became thoroughly obsessed with his music um, in a short time and uh, actually did some historical research while I was still in high school. Um, and I talked to his younger brother, Lewis, shortly before he died in 1983. Um, The research that I had done um, led me to UCSB, where he had willed his papers, and the mass of it had come just, I think, about a year before, no, that was a year after I'd graduated from Ambrose. I was interested in going to graduate school because I had a degree in music and wasn't sure what to do with it. But I had done this research, and the 
the UCSB library was very interested in having me help them organize the papers. And so I went to graduate school um, and discovered very quickly that if you want to get a PhD, you need to go somewhere where you can work with a particular scholar that you're interested in. I was interested in a manuscript collection. And so I did manage to finish the master's degree, but the opportunity to manage the estate emerged. Um, well, I had kind of tread water at the university, not really... Unfortunately, the music department there was very conservative, and they had very little interest in in a composer like Herman. Hmm. And so the film department loved it, but they didn't have a Ph.D. program. And so I decided to leave the university and take on the management of the estate. And so I did that for a number of years and then continued to work at editorial projects for Franz Waxman's son's company, Theme and Variations, which specialized in concert adaptions of film music. And it was through a project related to to themes and variations that I became familiar with Diane Corwin, who is Norman Corwin's daughter. And there, um, the project that brought us together was a performance from my edition of Whitman, which was an essay that Corwin developed in the summer of 1944 for his series, Columbia Presents Corwin, that was written for Charles Lawton, who performed it live um, with Herman's score. And so I edited both the text and the music, and it was performed at the, um, at the National Gallery in uh, April of 2016. And so I developed a friendship with Mrs. Corwin, who was very concerned about her father's legacy, which was very difficult to manage because it's so large. Mm. He was active for 70 years. And so I, uh, we finally did um, sign a contract about a year and a half ago. And my first task was to write a short essay about uh, on a note of triumph, which has just last year been inducted into the National Recording Registry. Mm. Yeah, so it's a, <sighs> you came through the composer to the writer. Yes. And uh, and now you're deeply involved in Corwin's estate. He was one of the best-known people in radio during the World War II. I mean, you saw his name everywhere. He was very strongly and remains very strongly identified with his work at CBS from 1938 to 1947. He had another 50-year career after that, um, but he's mostly remembered as a as a radio personality. But he he also wrote dramas and all sorts of things. Yes screenwriter. He acted as screenwriter and then had an important career as an educator at USC teaching screenwriting. So this oh. for you, your interest in it began when you were very young. High school, I'm thinking. Yes. And and it's carried you through all of these different connected manifestations, it seems like. To 
I had an interesting period of drift at Ambrose because of a professor that was there, James Green, who taught organ. Oh, yeah. Uh, Father Green. Uh, yes, he's hard to forget. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he introduced me to the music of Charles Tournemir, and for a time, my interests really kind of started focus on that and the um, the circle of organists in Paris that were active between World War One and World War Two. Um, it was a very, it was a very strange thing. I went to UCSB in October of 1986 to look at the papers and talk to a few of the professors, and then a month later I went to um, to the University of Pittsburgh to talk to a scholar that had studied Tournemire's music um, in very extensively, and I, <laughs> I'll never forget. He was a very interesting guy. His name was Robert Sutherland Lord. And he said, you know, I don't know if it would be a good idea to pursue Tournemere. If you've got this interest in Herman and it's very well developed, you probably could go farther with that. Yeah. Which was very forthright. Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, Tournemere is now being discussed just in the last couple of months because one of his operas was premiered in Ulm, Germany, uh, based on the Tristan myth, um, which was rejected in 1930 by the Paris Opera when the director looked up from the manuscript and said, Monsieur Tournemire, there is only one Tristan. (laughs) (laughs) But that was a good thing to go to Bernard Herrmann because his... uh, He's one of the Hollywood composers that has caught on. Corn, Gold, Waxman, there are a bunch of them. Steiner. Mm-hmm. And uh, they really, their music is written to order for mo- for movies, but they also did compositions on their own. Yes. And so you are wor- uh, working with Korngold's estate as well as with Corwin's? Well, I worked very briefly. I, I consulted with the Korngold estate. Um, they were interested in a scholarly edition of his work. And that actually is one of my interests also is scholarly editions. Um, it's really the best way, even though it's... It's difficult and expensive, but if you're going to secure assets, a scholarly edition is the thoroughest way to do that, Mm -hmm. to establish, based on the sources, as much as you can convey about the artist's intentions, so that any user of an edition can come to it with the confidence that they won't need to do research of their own to find out what the artist intended. Hmm. So I worked at a Herman edition a, a great deal um, up until rights problems emerged and stopped it dead in its tracks, sadly. That still hasn't been cleared, um, and I'm hoping that it can be. But Corwin is another prospect for scholarly editing that I think would be very helpful. And I have been especially interested in being involved with that estate because as a very politically progressive person um, during the cultural front years, um, as was Herman and Orson Welles, who I'm also interested in, um, his writing and his views are very topical now. Mm -hmm. They resonate very strongly 
right now. In fact, there are times when if you switch out the names, it could sound like something that was written for cop- as copy for today's news services. Uh-huh. Yeah, but he, you know, that name lingers in my memory from the war years. And uh, then thereafter, he he had quite a career. He produced all sorts of things. He did, although sadly, he he was very keenly um, concerned about the rightward turn after World War II, and had been pursued aggressively by the HUAC, even though he had no um, suspicious affiliations, hmm. and he worked very hard to convince them of that. They, It was a very dark time. Yeah, the House yeah. on American Activities Committee will always be listed in my book and memory as one of the worst things Congress ever did, yeah. up until Joe McCarthy. You know, I had a very interesting experience. This was a Waxman connection with the director, Jules Dassin, who had come back to Hollywood. This was the last time he visited Hollywood um, in 2005. And there's a great story about that meeting, but I'll just tell you one tiny little part of it. Um, I was invited to a screening at Paramount Studios of one of his later films, the first American film that he made after The Blacklist, which was called Uptight, which I had never heard of. And so I got to meet him I had gone to a screening the night before at LACMA of Rafifi, which if you haven't seen it, you must. It's phenomenal. Mm. And it put him back on the map in 1955 after Claire Booth Luce had done everything she could to destroy his career. (laughs) And so we got in, we were in the theater, we were about to start, and Barry Allen, the preservation officer at Paramount, comes rushing in and says, oh, Mr. Dasson, welcome back to Hollywood. I have something that I want you to see before we run the film. Um, we had second unit um, footage that was used for the credit sequence of Roman Holiday, and we fixed the writer credit so Dalton Trumbo's credit is there, because it wasn't. Because of the HUAC. And Dasson was going, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. And I felt so badly for him because I'd been at Lockbaugh the night before and the place was packed because it was a blacklisted writer. And so everybody came out and they wanted to ask him 109,000 questions about that. And then here's Barry doing it, too. And it was as if that was all anybody cared about. And he'd done lots of other things. Yeah. And so when they ran it, I felt very uneasy because as, a, as someone who's concerned with preservation and documentation as I am in my career, it's important not to erase history. Yeah. And by changing that credit sequence, you're basically taking what happened away. Hmm. To me, the responsible thing would have been to start the film at the top with a card that said, this film is based on a story by Dalton Trumbo, who wasn't given credit because of his political views, and then run the film. Mm -hmm. But I found out uh, years later from uh, Sean Belston, the preservation officer at 20th Century Fox, that the Writers Guild has mandated that any of the signatories, the big studios, um, who were able to alter 
those credit cards to reflect the participation of any blacklisted writer were bound to do so by the agreement. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if now that I have some cred as the uh, manager of the Corwin estate, if I can go to the Writers Guild and say, <laughs> I am here to help you with a terrible thing that you've been doing. <laughs> well, but about I've... Corwin, uh, he, he worked at CBS, and that really started him, didn't it? It did. He had a very brief gig in publicity at 20th Century Fox the year before, and uh, he had been um, broadcasting uh, at a radio station um, uh, around the time that he was brought in at CBS, and it was it was a fairly rapid ascent. But as I had said, the the major event was that broadcast in um, in the winter of or well it would have been the late fall of forty one. And then after World War II, very, very quickly, the, this was, the problem with Corwin's time after the war at CBS was that, um, and this was a problem for Herman and for Wells, um, William Paley, who had been the, the, uh, the Knight at Arms leading CBS for, since shortly after it was created, came back from war service um, and was told by the man who had been running it in his absence that, you know, we're known as the Tiffany Network. We have this great reputation for our content. Um, we're not, you know, the moneymaker that NBC is, but that's an important thing and we should keep doing that. And unfortunately, Paley's ego heard second best and oh. shut off. He spent the remainder of the 40s trying to make CBS the leading radio network. And so this meant moving away from the quality content that Corwin had become very accustomed to being able to do, especially uh -huh. with the freedom that he had to do it. Let's talk about that uh, broadcast that uh, was on the anniversary of the signing of the Bill of Rights. That was a broadcast that was carried by all radio networks, which is something unusual. They would carry sporting events and so on, but for a composition of that sort, that, uh, that is something that is historic. Yes, it, it remains historic as the most listened to non-news radio broadcast in history with 60 million listeners. <laughs> um, it had been developed at the behest of Archibald McLeish. And uh, he struggled through the fall of 41 trying to work it up and worked right up to the very end on it. Um, but it basically put him on the map and he became a major figure in American culture from that, that broadcast onward uh, through the war. Did he, he had a second one, didn't he, when the war was over? The first one, because of its great success, um, 
the idea then became that there needed to be one like that for the end of the war. Because mm-hmm. even though the first broadcast was a week after Pearl Harbor and had, you know, which it was entirely accidental, um, it still it got the the listenership that it did because of the declaration of war a week before. Hmm. So it's very strongly identified with the opening of American involvement in the war. So they wanted him to create another one that would be ready when the victory over Europe was declared. And Hmm. so he had that worked up a couple of months before the Allied victory in May. And Herman wrote the score, as he had for the um, previous broadcast, and that uh, the second one was called On a Note of Triumph. It was performed uh, with Martin Gable um, uh, as the uh, basically the narrator, um, and then was repeated on the 13th of May and recorded and released as a uh, set of 78s um, after that. My recent involvement with that broadcast became a concern because most people only knew the performance on the 13th of May, but it was very hard to find a copy of the one on May 8th on on VE Day. And so when the Library of Congress contacted us telling us that they wanted to add it to the registry, I was very quick to ask them that it be the one recording on the 8th, especially if this meant that there was going to be any kind of very um, uh, state-of-the-art audio restoration work done on the surviving sources, the air check mm-hmm. sources. And so they've done that. And so now both of them... Uh, will be more readily accessible. You know, when you're dealing with the works of Norman Corwin, that's got to be a bushel. (laughs) He He wrote an awful lot. Enormously prolific, um, a very vigorous mind, uh, very, very um, powerful opinions, (laughs) and he lived to be 101. Um, I met him when... I think he was 94. Um, I had been working on an essay for a CD release of Franz Waxman's score for the story of Ruth, which Corman had written for the screen. And it uh, it was released in 1960. And he was in town. He, he lived over in West L.A. And um, John Waxman... Um, put me in contact with him. And so I went over there and I knew that um, he had been, um, he hadn't been very socially active for a few years. I think he stopped teaching about five years before. So I was expecting him to, you know, just want to sit around and talk. And I got to the apartment and he said, let's go to lunch. (laughs) And says, okay. (laughs) So we went to his favorite place and, uh, he tended to be fairly broad in the way he talked, but it that mind was still as sharp as it ever was. And so he had very, very interesting memories of having worked on that project. That was that was kind of it was fairly late in his screenwriting career. He had become allied with MGM 
And again, it was sort of like what happened with Herman. They both tended to stay pretty closely connected to their friends from CBS radio, many of whom came to Hollywood and worked in the film industry after radio declined. So John Houseman um, had a... um, He worked at RKO for a little while and hated it because of Hughes uh, and then left. And Dory Sherry, who had been basically booted out of RKO by Hughes, um, wanted Hausman to go along when Sherry went to MGM. So then Hausman had a very happy time at MGM producing films there. And so... um, by the 60s, that had all kind of wound down. Uh, the studio system was was basically crumbling from its very um, overdeveloped state at the end of the war. And, uh, and so his career went in very different directions after that, especially in teaching. Are you responsible for... Uh the cataloging of uh, Corwin's works. Yes, that's part of the part of the process. Um, investigating all the copywriting that's been done, um, looking for contracts, getting everything organized. Um, that's the basically the core part of the operation, and then um, developing promotional projects. Um, will be, you know, a step that follows that. But the first, it's, it's basically this, the due diligence process. Mm-hmm. You which need is, to secure the assets. It has just taken you to so many interesting people and places and projects. And I was thinking, is this, um, you say you have a younger person saying, I want to do this. How do you, what kind of... Is it a nine to five? Is it every day? Is it just it's, as you're as you're gripped or invited or um, you have a new idea? Are are you just? I'm just fascinated with in the other whole words, idea. Is this a profession? Well, that, that you can study for. <laughs> well, yeah. You it, you come, There are a lot of things you draw in in doing this kind of work. Um, there hasn't been a lot of activity um, in the past year. I, the pandemic yeah. actually did stop a lot of theatrical work that was going on. Yeah, and I, I came into this while that was still still going. And so it was very, very quiet when I started. Um, I recently have dealt with a uh, clearance for an academic book. Mm. Um, and there... Um, there are, has have been rumbles of other projects that are in development, um, but we haven't really talked Turkey about them yet. If somebody so. wants to do Norman Corwin, they've got to talk to you. Well, that there we do have. Um, there are a couple of things, or a, a couple of volumes of plays that are uh, on a sort of creative commons basis available. If you do it as it's published, Mm. then we're okay with you just going ahead and performing them. But any kind of adaption or anything like that has to come through me. And I will come after you if you don't. (laughs) Well, you know, you have a very interesting and unusual career, Christopher, I must say. But uh, Norman Corwin is a fascinating man and his work. uh, It's not that 
not that well known today, mm-hmm. but there are still plays of his that you can do. Yes. Well, yeah. I'm very hopeful that we can bring him more into public awareness, especially because of the the great pertinence of his views mm-hmm. to contemporary concerns as a politically progressive person during the cultural front years. He is speaking to us very directly about our concerns today. Well, we thank you for speaking to us. Christopher Houston, who was the estate manager of Norman Corwin and Bernard Herman, and my goodness, good luck to you as you continue your studies in this field. And thank, thank you. you very much for spending time with us. It was my pleasure. And that'll do it for this edition of Scribble. I'm Don Wooten with Rebecca Wee. We'll be back next week and hope you will too for the next Scribble. Goes like wind.